and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I represent kids' books from picture books through YA and everything in between. Today is a lot about craft and structure for novel writers, although as we'll see, many of the same points can be applicable to picture book writing as well. My guest mentions a couple of useful books on craft and inspiration during the cast, which I will be linking to in the show notes. But I also wanted to give a shout out to a few writing books that have been really helpful and informative for me as both a writer and a reader and agent editor and human. (laughs) People ask me all the time, what writing books do you recommend? And um, these are some of them. First up is an oldie, but a goodie, uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. If you haven't read it, oh my gosh, please do. It's probably one of the books besides kids' books that I have reread most often. It's funny, it's helpful, it's real. If you've ever been overcome by writer's block or writer's anxiety or any of the host of other self-inflicted perils that tend to beset writers, it's for sure worth a read. The title comes from an anecdote about Anne's brother when she was 10, who was at the kitchen table frozen with nerves about tackling a big ornithology report he'd had three months to write and hadn't done. Been there. (laughs) Their father told him, bird by bird, buddy. You just got to take it bird by bird. I must say, I repeat this advice to myself quietly sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed, so even the title of the book itself is useful. Just imagine what's inside. Next up, On Writing by Stephen King. This book had a profound effect on younger me. I wouldn't say that I'm a big fan of Stephen King, the writer. I've only read a few of his fiction books. They're not really my cup of tea, but but I love this book, and it made me a big fan of Stephen King, the man. The first half is autobiography, which is actually important and sets the stage for the other pieces he's going to bring you, and then he gets into writing advice. And while sometimes the advice might be prescriptive or you've heard it before, and you know, you should always take any writing advice with a grain of salt, a king has a funny and like no bullshit way of delivering it that makes it fresh, his advice is is on point, and his writing itself is clear as glass. It's a great book. So my next pick is kind of an oddball one, maybe. It's called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage by Anne Patchett. I listened to this in audio, and um, Anne Patchett reads it, which is a fantastic audiobook, but it's also great on paper. This is interestingly not a story of a happy marriage. This is part literature, part memoir, and a masterclass in storytelling. It's a wide-ranging collection of essays about life and caregiving and jobs and pets, It's about cultivating curiosity, and especially about our joy and hard work of writing. It's not strictly a writing book, but it's a great read for writers. Or for anyone, but for writers especially, I think. Uh, Next up is a crafty, more crafty book, Real Revision by Kate Messner. This is ostensibly a book for teachers who are teaching writing to kids' students. But spoiler alert, it's useful for not-so-young writers, too. Kate uses published author mentors to model the fact that revision is not just fixing typos, but involves research and brainstorming and work. This book is full of hands-on strategies and techniques that are sure to be interesting for teachers of children and for writers of children's books. And finally, The Magic Words, writing great books for children and young adults by the brilliant editor Cheryl Klein, is a vital handbook for writers who want to break into the children's book field, and it's a great refresher for those of us who are already neck deep in it. 
Cheryl dives deep into issues of craft, character, voice, point of view, drafting, revision. It's full of useful tools and exercises. Cheryl is a smart, practical, and generous editor, and that shines through beautifully in the magic words. My guest today is Erin Dion, a writer and English professor who has written six novels for middle graders. The latest, Lights, Camera, Disaster, came out last month from Arthur A. Levine Books, an imprint with Scholastic, and she has her very first picture book coming out this fall. And she's going to get into it about revision and craft and all kinds of stuff. So let me see if I can get Erin on the line. Hi, Erin. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I'm so great. So I want to dive right into it because we have so much to talk about today. Um, First of all, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit and talk about your path to publication? Sure. Um, My name is Erin Dion. I have published um, six middle grade kind of tween novels. Um, My first book came out in 2009, um, which is really actually the second novel that I wrote. My first book I wrote and revised for seven years and um, shall remain in a drawer forever. Um, (laughs) And uh, so the second book, which is the first one that came out is called Models Don't Eat Chocolate Cookies. And um, I, uh, my path to publication, it took me about 10 years um, between working on that first book. And then when I really buckled down, I'd say it was like 2005 or 2006. And I got into going to SCBWI conferences. And um, I really learned a lot more about craft and um, focused on craft for um, four years. Um, And that's really, you know, it it took me about a year to find my agent. And um, yeah, and I guess I feel like once, um, once I figured out story, that was when um, things kind of came together for me with that first book. Well, and that's part of what you're here for, because when we were recently together at the New England SCBWI conference, uh, you were talking to me about craft and about revision and about story. And I was like, whoa, she's really smart. She needs to come and talk to people about that. <laughs> so uh, so you've said that revision is your favorite part of writing, it, but it's the piece that scares a lot of new writers in particular. So what is it about revision that sings to you? I love revision. And I don't, I, I appreciate your nice words. I don't know about sounding smart, but I've thought <laughs> about revision a lot. And um, it's, I feel like for me, drafting is super hard because I'm a reformed pantser, which we can talk about a little bit later, maybe. Um, and I used to just start with a character and go. Um, and over the years, and after writing so many books, like that just doesn't that I couldn't sustain that that type of writing. Um, I ended up doing revision after revision, and I I love revising. Um, because I feel like for me, drafting is so hard because I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know, you know, I kind of had an idea where the end was, but once I had that draft, I was like, okay, this is stuff I can work with and I can make a story better. Um, in my other life, I'm an English teacher. I'm a professor at a small art school called Montserrat College of Art. And so I'm always, you know, talking to students about their writing and about editing and, really trying to work with them to make their writing better. So I have an appreciation for the for the editing process. And I understand that that's what revision does. It makes your writing get better. It makes your story go from good to great and great right. to excellent. 
So what are some favorite methods, tips, tricks for revision? Well, I think revision is all about objectivity. You have to be able to cultivate, and it's it's kind of like a false sense of objectivity because you've spent all this time working on your book and you're super close to it. You know, there's that whole, like you're in the forest, right? You can't, you can't see your way out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything is super precious to you because you're like, oh, I remember writing that scene in that coffee shop and it took me so long and I love those <laughs> words. Um, so you have to really trick yourself to being objective and getting like, I like to say a 30,000 foot view of your manuscript. So I do a lot of things um, to cultivate that. I um, actually print my manuscript out. So I do all my drafting um, on the computer and then I'll, I'll print it out. And actually having a hard copy lets me physically see it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll edit, you know, I'll, I'll do all my edits by hand on the hard copy. Um, I also do a lot of charts um, and lists. So I'll like list all the important things that show up in my novel across the top. I'll put, um, I'll number out the chapters and I'll go through and I'll check off to make sure that everything and everybody is showing up in the book. Um, I've done do you do that in like in Scrivener or something or on paper. I do it on, on paper. Um, mm. I actually find it a lot easier to be away from the computer and especially in the early stages of revision. Mm. Um, So I do stuff like that. I make, uh, I do storyboards um, where I'll actually draw with like stick figures, the um, most significant moment in each chapter. And I'll kind of lay them out like a comic strip. And then I can actually look and see, you know, is this story visually interesting? So in other words, is it going to jump off the page at the reader? And if the answer is no, <laughs> like it was in my last book, I had to cut the first four chapters off because it, all I had were pictures of my main character sitting and looking sad at a desk. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I try to do everything I can to get away from, you know, that emotional connection to the book and to, to get that 30,000 foot view. Nice. And it's still, it takes time, you know? Uh, totally. So uh, some listeners have questions. Maybe you can help me answer them. Absolutely. So first up um, says, I know traditional advice for middle grade writers is to keep chapters relatively short, but there are always exceptions. My chapters are running long, about 4,000 words. I'm curious how put off editors are by longer chapters. How necessary is it to keep chapters short, would you say? So in my opinion, I have no idea. I've never thought about chapter length, but maybe you have. You know, it's kind of funny. I had never really thought about chapter length either until, um, my most recent book, because it has no chapters. And when I had originally turned it into my editor, it didn't have um, numbered chapters at all. And it just had um, breaks for what day of the week it was. And that's Mm -hmm. because the main character has a, a neuroprocessing disorder. And she's kind of a hot mess. She can't keep track of stuff. So I wanted the reader to have that experience. And the thing that my editor said that was really helpful was, you know, teachers and, and readers, especially in that middle grade age group, 
they need to be able to section out their reading, you know, whether it's by the number of pages or by the number of chapters. And it just gets overwhelming for, you know, a kid in that nine to 12 age range to have, you know, tons and tons of text to deal with. And I totally get that. I have a a nine-year-old. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, you need to worry about your chapter length as much as white space. Are there ways that you're breaking up your chapter by sections? Or um, can you make it visually easier for a reader to see a stopping point and a starting point? And yeah. I would say if, you, if that's not the case, if you're just dealing with 4,000 words you know, of one scene, then you do need to probably cut it back. Um, that's a lot for that age group to deal with. Um, so really thinking about your readers, I think is important. And, you know, who is your target audience? You know, if you're talking about that third, fourth, or fifth grader, they're just, not all of them are able to handle that density, um, that an adult can. Well, I don't know about adults <laughs> being able to handle it either. So. Uh, along those same lines, and this is not exactly a listener question, it's a Jennifer question. I get a lot of queries that say something like, this story is 10 million words long, but they're all really important words and I can't cut it down. Or sometimes the text of a book is so spare that it isn't really quite a book yet. Do you have a tendency to overwrite or underwrite? And how do you solve that? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I do a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have I when I when I tend to overwrite, it's because I get really excited about a scene or I get really invested in a character or a moment. Um, and when I tend to underwrite, it's because I haven't developed a character enough. Um, but in terms of like, you know how do you, there are so many words and they're all really important. How do you cut them? Again, I think you need that, that layer of objectivity and you need to be able to look at your story and say, you know, is this really moving along? Is my reader, you know, going to have the attention span to follow this digression? Everything should point towards where your story is going. You know, if you Mm -hmm. have all these tangents, you you don't need them. Your, your reader's not going to stick with you. We're competing with so much technology. We're competing with, you know, kids with sports schedules and other family obligations. You want to not give them a reason to put your book down. Mm -hmm. Um, so staying really focused is important and then really doing the work at looking at your sentences and, you know, are you describing things in a way that is clear and succinct, that's going to put a picture in the reader's head? Or are you spending a lot of time trying to kind of blow out a description of something that your reader either doesn't need to see, or isn't going to be able to hold in their head? Mm-hmm. Um, one great piece of advice that I got from an editor was every time you're you have a minor character come on stage in your story, you should add one new thing about them so that their story builds and that they build in the reader's mind through the whole book. Mm, Nice. I really like that. Um, And it's, 
because I think a lot of new writers tend to info dump and they try to get everything in at once. And you don't have to do that, right? You want to be able to spread things out so that your reader is discovering things as they go through the whole story. And I think that's a more effective experience, like reading experience. I find this is a weird tangent. I'm going to go on, but a very short tangent. There are certain professions of writers, like their day job, where they have interesting tendencies. So I find that journalists tend to underwrite. Like they they provide very good details. I mean, it's usually a very exciting story, but often you need to fill in more because it's just too short. I find that lawyers tend to be in passive voice a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting, and I wonder, like, maybe there's a way to study this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense because that's what those professions have kind of trained your brain to do, right? Like, totally. Um, you know, writing legal documents is all about passive voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, your next question. Uh, from a listener, do you think it's unusual for a serious writer to be a pantser instead of a plotter? Ooh, I don't, I don't think it's unusual. I think maybe we should really quick describe because some people might not know our jargon, right? What's a pantser and what's a plot plotter? So a plotter is somebody who plans out their whole book, right? And you can have different degrees of of being a plotter. I know writers who outline every single every single scene in their book and they they get it down to how many pages each one should be and mm-hmm. then they they really just have a map that they have to follow um there are and then so that's like one far extreme of a of a plotter um and then you know kind of going backwards on the scale from there there are people who make like a light outline of like big moments or um you know kind of fill in an in between Pantsers just sort of go and <laughs> <laughs> figure it out as they go. Maybe they have a, an idea for a plot, like a what if question, or they have a really enticing character that they want to put in a situation and see where they go. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a reformed pantser. Um, mm. I used to just, like I said, start with a character and go. And that's part of the reason why drafts were so awful me was because I just had so much to figure out as I went. But I also thought that, well, if I plan everything, then it's not going to be as much fun to write (laughs) because I'll know what happens. (laughs) Well, it's all about having fun, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So when you, so, I mean, it sounds like you became a bit of a plotter, but do you think that that's a requirement for a serious writer? Do you think that like, there are people who literally can write a book without knowing anything about what's going on. I don't know the answer to that, by the way. I, you know, I think, I think there are as many different types of writers as there are types of people. So I'll say, sure. I'm sure that there are some people who can, you know, write like that for their whole career. Um, just because there's an exception to everything. Um, I think in terms of, you know, if you are, I don't, and I don't like the word serious either. What does that even mean? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> well, that was the listener's word, in fairness. <laughs> if you, so, like, if you're if you're somebody who is writing a lot of books, you know, a book a year or a series, I think that being a pantser becomes much more difficult, right? Because 
it usually takes you takes pantsers a little bit longer to either draft or revise because they've got to fix things, you know, kind of pull everything in together. Um, Cause it usually makes for a messier first draft. Yeah. So, you know, is it going to slow you down? Possibly. Um, does that mean you can't have a career like that? I don't think so at all. Like I wrote three books that way. Um, mm. And, you know, it just, um, it just takes a little bit more for me anyway, it took a little bit more time on the revision end of it um, to get things they, in order. They go on to ask if that would affect the agent client relationship when discussing future work because a pantser doesn't start from an outline. Um, so I'll answer that part, which is no, not really. <laughs> I mean, uh, for me, every client I work with as they wish to work. So some people give me a synopsis and an outline and really detailed um, proposal of something before they even start writing. Some people don't tell me anything at all, or they give me a sentence about what it's about, or they send me a chunk of it, you know, when they've written a little bit or something like that. So however you want to work is usually where I meet you. So, um, so I think it's okay too. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's no one way to be a writer. And I think so true. I think we get in trouble when we start saying like, oh, you have to do things this way because you have to do the things the way that work for you. Yes. Okay. Back to you. So (laughs) you were talking about story earlier, story structure. What do you mean when you talk about story structure and how do you find or create that structure? So I think about structure in in two different ways. A a way that came really intuitively for me um, is through character. And, you know, we we all kind of agree in terms of writing a good story that our characters grow and change because of their experiences. Um, It doesn't have to be a major change, right? But, But our characters should have some have some change in who they are because of what they've gone through in your story. So on the one hand, right, um, you can look at story structure as where your character begins and where they end. So for example, if you have a character that begins your story as being very selfish and self-involved, at the end of the story, in theory, right, one direction that they could go is to be a little bit more generous and aware of others. So you've got to get them from that selfish point to that point where they're more generous. So you've got Mm. to figure out what things are going to happen to them in order to move them along on that continuum. Okay. So that's what we call character arc, right? Your character has got to go, you know, kind of go along the arc. The other piece of it is plot is what happens to get the character to move into change. Mm -hmm. And that is the part that I always really struggled with because I, I had a handle on my character, but I, for some reason, like all that stuff that happened to them, <laughs> was really hard for me <laughs> and making it happen in the right order. Um, so I actually wrote my first three books kind of struggling along, like I understood who my characters were, I sort of had an idea where they were going. And like I said, I would do like a dozen, literally a dozen revisions um, Mm -hmm. per book. When I wrote um, my mystery novel, Moxie and the Art of Rule Breaking, mysteries have rules that you have to follow. 
And they have a structure where you find out about the mystery, you get clues, you solve it, there's bad guys, there's red herrings. So I actually had to sit down and do some some planning, Mm -hmm. some plotting. And I was like, oh, (laughs) this makes writing so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) I still knew who my character was. And I still had that idea that that arc. But working with that, like, those rules around a mystery, I was like, oh, I can see the value in having a structure as to what actually happens in the story before I write it. Um, and so that's when I started looking a little bit more deeply into plot structure. Um, and so in my latest book is about a, a character who's a filmmaker. And I was doing a lot of research about writing films and making films to learn about this character. And then I learned about cinematic story structure um, some people use uh, Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, which is the, oh, yeah. the beat sheet, um, which is basically, you know, plot points that help that again, that help your character move along in their um, story arc. Um, other people use this, um, another version, which is like, uh, it's like eight or 10 um, plot points. Um, that's called a, a cinematic uh, cycle. So that was also set off a light bulb in my head. It's like, oh, there are these specific things that happen in all of these stories that we like that if you line them up, you know, from the beginning of where your character is to the end of where you want your character to be, like, oh, you can you can kind of figure out how to get your character, you know, what are, what are the things that have to happen to get your character to, to grow and change. Um, so, um, so in Lights, Camera, Disaster, you, because it's about a young filmmaker, you've also incorporated an interesting storytelling technique into the text, like the pause and rewind and stuff like that. It's very effective. Was that always part of the story or did you decide to add that element after? That came in revision. Um, I was actually, I was really struggling with the book and what I wanted the book to be like and how I wanted her character to be. And I was driving down to this library visit in Connecticut. And I thought, if I could just have her pause and just stop for a minute and just, (laughs) and then I thought, well, wait a second. Why can't I? I could do that. (laughs) And so I I pulled over into this really gross gas station parking lot. (laughs) And I made a note in my notebook and just list and said, you know, um, Hester would pause and rewind her life if she could. And that was enough so that when I went back to the manuscript, I I started implementing these section breaks where she she'll fast forward through things that are boring and just kind of list everything <laughs> that happens. Um, and it was really fun. That's excellent. I loved that. Um, so you now you've got your first picture book coming out in the fall. Uh, is the method you use for structuring novels the same as picture books or how does it differ? It actually, um, it actually is the same. So I, I kind of became a big fan of the, the Blake Snyder's beat sheet, um, which are these 15 plot points that show up in all these different movies. And, um, they're not events that happen, but it's sort of like, you know, your character has a dark night of the soul, right? They have a major crisis, um, that they have to get out of. And so, when I was actually structuring my picture book, I um, laid out 
the the 15 plot points of a beat sheet and a picture book is about 32 pages. And I realized I could actually build a picture book this way with two pages per beat. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the past when I've written picture books, I'm a novelist. And so I just, I couldn't get the story spare enough. Um, and I just realized I had to compress everything. Um, I had to compress all these moments um, and get them, you know, into this really tight, small package. And it was a great challenge um, and really, really fun. So I, I've, I actually have um, uh, another one that's coming out in 2019. And I used, I used the beat sheet for both of them. And I'm going to put a link to the Save the Cat in the show notes. So if you guys are listening and going like, what the heck are they talking about? You can look at that. Uh, I think it's really can be really useful. And at least it's interesting to think about and look at for sure. Absolutely. Um, so has switching to picture books been a learning curve? And what did you discover along the way? Yeah, picture books were, they're so hard. I give tons of credit to people who who write picture books all the time. They're just, they're so spare and um, you've got to still get that character arc in there. You've got to have, you know, exciting stuff happen in your plot. Um, You have to have a character that kids can relate to. So yeah, I found them, I find them super challenging and really, really fun. Um, and it really forces me to look at, look at every word and think about what is that communicating? What is, you know, is this going to get across to my reader? What I, what I need it to, um, with the added element of like picture books are mostly read alouds. So you have to have it so that your youngest audience can hear it and understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a different that's a different way of thinking too. You know, like you're the little guys can't go back and reread a paragraph or they don't know to ask like, mom, can you reread that? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I thought a lot about language. I thought a lot about, um, you know, getting a character that kids would connect with right away. Um, and I had a ton of fun with it. It's, I loved revising the picture books because, you know, I could sit down and write another, like a whole other draft of it from beginning to end and feel super mm-hmm. accomplished. <laughs> um, the other thing that I think people do not think about with picture books is how long they take. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the biggest learning curve. Like you think, I don't know if you're used to a novel, maybe it takes 18 months to come out. Like a picture book might take years. years. <laughs> Yeah, they are. Um, and, and it's so, I think it too, as a, as a novelist, uh, working, you know, having an illustrator bring your story to life. Um, and, you know, this is a, it's a, it's a collaboration, but it's sort of a silent collaboration because mm-hmm. you've got to, you know, hand it over. And, and for the most part, you know, there's very little conversation between the author and the illustrator, because the illustrator really needs to do their job without an author looking over their shoulder. Um, and any illustrator is going to come up with something way better than I could ever even conceive of. Um, so that was so exciting for me. Like I was giddy when I saw the proofs because it was, it just blew me away. It's like 
somebody taking my words and building this whole other visual world around them in, in ways that I never would have expected. Yay. So <laughs> amazing. I love it. Um, so what are some of your favorite new books, not by you, <laughs> that readers should look out for? Maybe readers who love Lights, Camera, Disaster, what do they read next? Ooh. Um, well, first I'll tell you what I'm reading and then maybe we can, we can go with uh, what Lights, Camera, Disaster uh, readers <laughs> might like. Um, I'm loving Dread Nation. Yay. Um, I talked about that at length on my podcast already. Yeah. So <laughs> I listened to that, uh, to that episode with Justina. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually like purposely slowing it down because, um, I don't want it to be over. <laughs> I'm loving it so much. Mm. Um, I'm really looking forward to, um, Breakout by Kate Messner, which comes out next month. So I pre-ordered that. I'm super excited for that book. And um, next on my list is um, Varian Johnson's Parker Inheritance. I'm uh, dying to get into that. I'm a huge fan of the Weston game, and I know he was inspired by that book. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm super stoked about those. Awesome. And uh, anything that is like for light scammer disaster readers? <laughs> um, I think, you know, if you, if you like humor, um, I think that, that lights is pretty funny, has some, has some really, um, funny moments. I think Molly Burnham's books, the Teddy Mars books are great. Um, and, uh, make a lot of movie references as well. Um, so those are, those are super fun. Excellent. So I ask all of my guests every time what they are obsessed with. It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. Um, mine, I'll go first so you have time to cogitate about what you're obsessed with. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that mine is iced coffee, and I have this whole speech planned about how to make perfect iced coffee because I've done a lot of studying of this, but it will have to wait because now I'm obsessed with like It got overtaken from between the time that I wrote this uh, these questions to now. Um, because now I'm obsessed with this show, Barry on HBO. Oh yes. It's so great. It's so great. So it reminds me a bit of the Sopranos or something, but maybe a little bit less violent. <laughs> it's about this guy played by Bill Hader, who's a former Marine and current contract killer, but he's just not finding any joy in it. You know, he's like full of ennui. He doesn't have a purpose. He's bored. He's like, ugh. <laughs> So one of the people he's supposed to kill is an actor and he follows this guy to an acting class in the Valley. And he realizes that these people are really tapped into their emotions and that he wants a piece of that. So he starts taking the acting class. But of course, being an anonymous hired killer is not compatible with being an actor who might get cast in things and not be anonymous. <laughs> so he needs to figure out a way to follow his heart without getting iced by the Cheshire mafia or, or his boss. Um, what I love about this show is everything about Bill Hader's character. So he's a study in contrasts. First of all, he thinks he's being a hero in a way. Like he thinks his job is to kill terrible people and get them off the streets. Right. But then it becomes clear that his boss doesn't care about the terrible people part. He just <laughs> wants him to kill people for money. <laughs> and then he's not a hero at all. He's a monster. And then he has to grapple with that. Um, and it's, you know, somebody who's completely closed off from their emotions in every way. Like, has like the most 
the least emotive person you can imagine, but who really wants to get in touch with his inner whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, I love him. I, it's funny. It's a delight. Um, it's for grownups, by the way. If there are any kid <laughs> listeners, please, no. Um, the season finale just showed, uh, and the entire first season is available on HBO Go or HBO Now or whatever streaming HBO thing. And that's my pick for the week of what I'm obsessed with, Barry on HBO. Awesome. Aaron, what are you obsessed with? So can I do two little things? Totally. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So my, my first, which is uh, also pretty recent, um, is Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, which it's it's old. It came out probably like 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least. At least. <laughs> but I... Um, I used it. It's a workbook, basically, that sort of, you know, helps. It, it kind of describes itself as being for blocked creatives. And although I don't consider myself blocked, I thought, oh, I, I want to go back to that as a way to sort of jumpstart my summer writing because I'm a teacher and now I'm off for the summer. So um, I'm going back through the artist way. I just started this week and that's pretty fun. Um, and one of the things that it does is it asks you to kind of do a what they call an artist date where you go out and you do something that is just for you and um, something to kind of stretch your creativity every week. So I'm looking forward to doing that this summer. Um, oh, wait, can I chime in? Yeah. Um, for teachers who want to write or do write also, I would um, strongly suggest that you look at Kate Messner's summer program teachers right yes i'm i'm um, actually teaching in that it's so great so great it's free every week there are um like writing prompts and lessons and uh advice from great writers and just it's really a great resource and i will put links to it in the show notes yeah i believe it starts um in july so yes. plenty of time to get going in there Exactly. So what's your second obsession? Oh, my, my second obsession is this app called HQ Trivia. And what? It's, <laughs> it's so addictive. It's this live trivia game that uh, it, it, it runs at three o'clock Eastern and nine o'clock Eastern. And you play, it's multiple choice. There are 12 questions. Um, you play along with, you know, like a million people, um, and there's prize money. And what? If, yes, and if you win, <laughs> you split the prize money with however many other people, you know, also win. So, for example, most of the time during the week, it's five thousand dollars, and you know, you might have a hundred people win, you might have seven hundred people win, and so that five thousand dollars is divided up amongst all of you. On weekends, on Sunday nights, you play for twenty five thousand, um, and sometimes they'll do it. Well, they'll they'll do as many questions as it takes to get to one winner. Um, and I'm totally obsessed. I drop everything at nine <laughs> o'clock at night, and it takes like ten minutes. Um, and it's like it's just hilarious and fun. And I haven't won yet. <laughs> oh my god! I think you just gave me a new obsession. <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> Um, but I'm very excited. Oh my gosh. Is it three o'clock yet? Okay. <laughs> um, all right, Erin Dion, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This was great. Yay. I'll talk to you soon. All right. 
Thanks so much to my guest, Aaron Dion, and thanks to you for listening. All the books we talked about today will be linked to in the show notes on my website, jenniferloughran.com slash literaticast. Don't forget, the Literaticast has a Patreon. Throw in a buck and you could win cool books. That's at patreon.com slash literaticat. And please, if you like the podcast, do leave a review at Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. More reviews help folks find us. Thanks again and see you next time.